Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up your systems. Hi, everybody. Trace Blackmore here. I am your host for Scaling Up, and I want to thank you for being part of the Scaling Up Nation and enjoying this fine show, Scaling Up H2O. I sure do enjoy recording these, and my favorite thing to do is to answer questions from the Scaling Up Nation because I know I'm speaking directly to the people that want to know these items. And of course, the only way I can do that is to get the questions you want to hear answered, the people you want to hear me interview, is for you to email those to me. And maybe you don't know how to do that, but that's okay, I'm gonna fix that problem. Go to scalinguph2o.com and you will see right up in the header that you can submit a question directly to me. It is so simple. And of course, while you're there, check out our show notes page. And coming soon, based on the request of the listeners out there in the Scaling Up Nation, we are going to be adding a products tab. So I mention a lot of products, I mention a lot of books on the show. Sometimes it's very difficult to go through the show notes and what show was that? Was it 38? Was it three? What was it? So my team and I are working on making the website more user friendly. So it's not there yet, but we are working on it. And the only reason we are working on it is because we're getting information from you. So thank you for keeping that coming to us. Speaking of questions, I get the most questions on our test kit, the different components that we're testing out there. Why do I get a reaction like this on this type of water? Or how come I can't get a reaction with this type of water? Or is this a sampling issue? All sorts of questions around testing. So rather than me talk about testing, I thought I would bring on one of the experts when it comes to testing. So my guest today is Harlan Pond of Aquaphoenix Scientific. Now, Harlan is a really good guest to have on to answer these questions because he doesn't only manufacture and sell us the test kits, which is what we expect Aquaphoenix Scientific to do, but he was also a water treater. So before he brought his expertise over to Aquaphoenix, he was in the field, he was in the trenches, just like we are every day. So he understands what we have to go through when we're actually in a mechanical room or whatever place we are in the field doing these tests. And a lot of times when we talk to people about testing and they're the manufacturers, it's simply based on what the results they got in the lab. And unfortunately, we don't always have pristine lab conditions when we're out in the field. So I am sure that you are going to enjoy this interview with Harlan Pond. My lab partner today is Harlan Pond of Aquaphoenix Scientific. And Harlan, I'm so glad you're on the show today. I know I've spoken a lot to the Scaling Up Nation about test kits and how there are tools and not our masters and how we need to be using them properly. And uh, I'm glad you're on the show because you're going to tell us what we need to know about test kits and how we can get more acquainted with them. But before we begin, how are you? Great, Trace. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I've been an avid listener in my car ride, so it's good to participate today. Well, we're definitely glad that you're here and thanks for listening to us. For those people out in the Scaling Up Nation that do not know who you are, do you mind uh, telling us a bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I have, uh, I've been in the water treatment industry for um, about 14, 15 years. I have a chemical engineering degree from Brigham Young University. I started out in the water treatment industry, uh, actually began my career hauling pails of chemicals and testing pinks and blues for, uh, at the time it was Ashland Drew Industrial. I did that for several years, then left and went into the pump industry for Grundfos pumps, where I did everything from chemical feed to uh, giant vertical turbine pumps that you could walk into. And then I've been at Aqua Phoenix for about um, a little over a year now in charge of our sales, our marketing and our product business development. Um, but I have been around testing even from my beginning days, both uh, 
running those tests. And then also um, I was in charge of our reagents and testing equipment. So I know exactly what it means to make those big decisions about what to put in your catalog or in front of your customers. So you've got experience from both ends of the spectrum. Um, the good and the bad experience. I've made all the mistakes and learned the bad habits and then had to retrain. <laughs> well, what's the, what's the biggest difference between working in the field with the test kit and then now you working actually making the test kits? It's interesting. I think that when you make the test kits, you could run into the tendency that you forget what it's like to actually run them in front of customers. And, and that's the biggest difference. Of course, we know what goes in them and we know the ins and outs and that helps. But um, making sure we're connected to how they're actually used is, is the big difference. And, and we always try to make sure we're grounded in that. Excellent. Well, let me ask this. So I'm a water treater. I've got a test kit. How should I look at that test kit? You know, a lot of us look at the test kit as that's what we're, or some of us when we start, we look at the test kit as that's what we're supposed to be doing when we go to a customer. And, and as you've said before and previous, I, it's definitely just a tool. It's one of many tools when we walk into an account, and it's not necessarily the best tool or better than the others, but it's it's something that can help us understand what's going on so we can apply the best expertise and advice that we can give to a customer. So I definitely look at it as a tool, and all of the mistakes or the, the things you can do well with a kit come around understanding what kind of tool it is and how you're going to use it. So let's say, let's talk specifically about just the test kit in general, and then we'll get into the specifics of the different tests, if that's a, a good way to do it. Absolutely. Okay, so we're talking about the, the realm of the test kit. How do I know what tests I need, what type of test, where to go get them, how it needs to be organized, everything that I need in order to just pick it up and take it out in the field? Where do I get that information and learn that? I'm going to take a step back from that question. I think it's a good question, Trace, but understanding that depth is a little bit more like a sophomore lover question. And for a lot of us, when we start in the industry, it actually begins a little bit before that, when somebody hands us a test kit. So we don't pick what goes in it, but I think most of us, a lot of our listeners, myself included, we begin our career when somebody says, here, this is your kit. And we haven't decided what goes in it. So in that level, what we need to first do is take apart your kit. I think that's probably the best idea. Dig into that kit, take it apart, pull everything out of it, probably clean it up, but identify everything that's in it. Make sure you read all of the procedures. You understand exactly how everything is used. Make sure you cover and understand the safety tips. What are the equipment? Are there equations you need? Make sure it all works. Um, and then also don't be afraid of the little parts of procedures that talk about interferences. That's where I would really start because you're usually given that kit. And then I would start on practicing what goes on. But I haven't forgotten your initial question, which is now, let's say I've got some experience and I want to understand what do I put in the kit? And from that is, if we view the test kit as a tool, we need to understand what the job it is we're doing. And where I would always start is what is the goal of your water treatment program that you put in place for a customer, both in what you're going to perform as a service when you arrive and what you would expect the customer to perform um, in the moments that you're gone. Once you understand those goals and how you're going to treat that system, then you can start making some decisions about how do you keep that program running and what kind of methods and tests you're going to put into that bag. Well, excellent advice. All right, so we have our test kit, and now we're trying to figure out how we can fill in the gaps. And we're, we're looking at all the various manufacturers out there, all the various different tests that are out there, and the different high and low ranges, and the different methods. How do you figure out which one is the best for your application? Uh, it's a good question, and I'm gonna cheat a little bit first when you first ask about what is the best. When it comes to what's the best method, is if it works for you and your customer. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll maybe explain that a little bit. So to be fair, there isn't really any best method when it comes to testing, except if it meets your goals and your customer's goals and the program that you've put in place. So as I said, again, first you need to do is review the goals of your program and then make sure the test fits them. And then we can talk about some of the actual chemistries. So first one is, if you're going and servicing, do you have enough time to complete some tests, the amount of time that you're able to spend in that account. That'll start determining what type of test methods you could use. 
If uh, it's a relatively small account, you're there to check up on things, you have a shorter window, that's where a good drop count titration as a method might serve you a little bit better. It gives you a pretty good idea of what's happening. Um, you're able to track the trends of the different chemistries, whether it's a corrosion inhibitor or it's a biocide that are in your water systems. Or if you have a little bit more time and you need to, to dive in and be a little bit more accurate, you might want something that allows you to get a little bit more accuracy but might take some more diligence and uh, some time. So for example, uh, a lot of times in higher pressure boiler accounts where the margin of error becomes a little bit slimmer in your treatment programs and where you actually might have a lab, a quality lab on site, that might be a place where you would want to switch to a burette titration setup where your accuracy is tighter. It's a little bit more involved in the procedure, but you're able to do it so you can keep your treatment a little sharper around chemical usage and making sure you're keeping that boiler safe and, and not corroding and uh, keeping that heat transfer moving efficiently. So that first starts with a type of test. Now you're going to then get into what are the different approaches. And for a lot of people, there's no real best way. There are a couple trade-offs in, in methods. You can look inside of tests and look at the kind of things that interfere with the test. And, and sometimes that might cause an issue in what you set up. So uh, some of the buffers we use in test reagents, for example, there's an EDTA is a buffer that's used in a couple different test titrations. It might react adversely or be consumed with some of the metals in your water. So if you have um, water with metals, you might not want to use that type of method because it might give you some interference you, you're not able to deal with. So you've mentioned interference a couple of times. Do you mind speaking a little bit about exactly what interference is? Right. So interference in a, in a test, I mean, I guess in a broad way, it, it's anything that that can change the results from what you would expect is in the water to what you're actually going to read and measure at the end of the test. In a broad sense, interference can be um, some physical or temperature or some other conditions that you've introduced in either how you've drawn that sample or that exists within your, your whole procedure that can, that can skew from what is there in reality to what you're going to be measuring. Um, in a more technical sense, and, and in what you'll see in, te in test procedures, interferences usually are referred to chemistries in the water that would interfere with the way the test works. So things that could mask, things that could give false positives or false negatives of the actual chemistry that you're testing for. So how would you verify the accuracy if you're suspecting an interference, whether it is an interference or if there's something else going on? One of the first things you can do is you can take a look at some of the standards that exist to make sure first that you have the right procedure and the right test approach that is in there. And then one of the best ways that I've seen is, you know, if you're new and you're testing the water, you're going to get familiar with the, um, and you did a great show on it that talked about uh, what's on your field report, right? Your testing report that you, you fill out as you do your service call. In there, there's a couple different things that have been set up for you to test. And the variety of those can help take a look at whether you have some interferences. So, you know, if you're looking at a couple different things in alkalinity or chlorides in a cooling system, has also your conductivity, those different things can give you some different ways to calculate your concentration cycles. And that would give some indications on whether you're missing something from interference in some of your other tests. Deeper than that, you can actually start doing some calculations and understanding how much you would expect to be in there um, and where you would be off based on what you're reading. So getting back to how to select a test, we talked about test methods. We talk about the type of test, whether it's a burette or a drop count titration, or we're going to use a meter. The other thing that you asked about was also manufacturer. So there are a lot of fantastic manufacturers. Now, of course, I'm biased. I, I stand behind the things that we build or distribute for. Um, at Aqua Phoenix, but there are some great chemistries that are well-proven and some quality products that come from a wide variety of manufacturers, whether it's Lamotte or Masters or Taylor or some of the other companies that are out there. A lot of times when it gets into that, you're starting to look at things from a manufacturer on that go beyond a little bit about the chemistry. There are differences in the chemistries and the methods. They use some different chemicals. They use some different drop count equivalencies and drop count tests or or some different approaches and strengths. They also have differences on how you can 
understand their test procedures and how you run them. And that starts getting into some personal preferences that come from experience as you as you interact with those kits and you understand what's going on with them. And then things that might not affect somebody right away in the field, maybe more affect somebody who's back in the office ordering, you start looking at some things about the customer service or how you get those equipment when you need them in the field. All right. Well, let's let's go back even further when you were saying that my original question was more sophomoric and, and great word, by the way. And, uh, and we were going to look back a little bit further where somebody is just handed a test kit. And normally they get the, the last test kit that anybody wants because nobody has grabbed it up until now. So it's, it's used. They need to clean it. They need to do all that stuff. And it's probably missing procedures. So how do they go out and find all the missing procedures that are not in that test kit? So that's great. And uh, you reminded me about something I'm going to get back to on getting that test kit. Um, procedures um, is a great question. All of the manufacturers will generally keep their procedures online or you can contact them directly. They'll give you replacement copies, full page, or, or sometimes those little waterproof or chemical proof cards that come in them. And then they'd all, I know all of the manufacturers and us also, we'd be happy to explain them or walk you through them. We also provide, and, and some of the other companies, some great videos that walk through procedures, um, which is whether you've been at it for only a short while or for a couple of years are good things to review because uh, it could remind you of some things that you maybe haven't perfected quite yet. Um, those are great additions to the actual procedures that you're going to see. It reminds me with the video of my first test kit, I got a big giant 400 pound tackle box that had been converted into a, a test kit. And, you know, not only do you get that test kit and have no idea what the yellow powder is and the white powder because they've separated all the components. And that's why we dig into it and try to understand. But with your test kit probably comes some training from a seasoned technician who tells you how to run the test. And I can tell you that I picked up some bad habits initially when I learned from them because you don't know any better and that's what you're used to. They explain how to do things and, and I had to unlearn some of those, whether it's um, learning how to sort of by eye throw out that last milliliter of water in your nitrate vial sample. But I've also seen, not myself, but I've seen other technicians, for example, open powder pillows with their teeth, which is never a good idea. You don't recommend that. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, <laughs> but it is a good reminder that that sometimes with the best intentions, we, we pick up some habits that aren't pro the best. And that's why, like you've talked about and I mentioned, go to your procedures. Make sure you understand those steps why they're there, and that really will help ground you in, in both a safe and a proper approach to testing. Well, I'm just thinking back to people that are just starting out and how difficult that has to be because everything's brand new to them. They have this test kit that they're unfamiliar with, and they've got procedures that they have really have no idea what they're saying, but they are reading through them. And then they're learning from somebody that has all of these bad habits that we've got to figure out You know, which ones we don't want and which ones we want to keep. So it's, uh, it's no wonder why when people make it two years in the industry, after dealing with all of that, they decided that they're here to stay, that, that, that they got to go through a whole bunch of stuff. It is. And when we get that far, we definitely have learned some good experience because that comes with practice. And that's where I think we talked about taking apart the kit, but that's the next piece is practice and practice. Get used to those procedures and get used to that you can repeat and get the same results over and over. And as you as you do that, you become familiar with the procedures and you become familiar with your approach. I know one of the water treaters in the AWT, they were explaining that when they bring someone on, they don't trust them until they're able to repeat that test 10 or 15 times in a row with the same number. Um, and then they feel confident that on that procedure, they're okay and they continue. What I will tell you, there's some really good resources to help anyone new to the industry, or even if you've been here a couple of years in this area. So first is obviously AWT. They host those great technical training sessions that some of the things online, but we have those in-person classes they do um, every year. Great opportunity. And, and in both of the, the, the new technician and the other classes, there's some hands-on testing training that takes place and some practical discussions about how to do testing, what are some of the ins and outs, and, and then you get your hands on some kits. It's a great opportunity. Most of the manufacturers out there, whether it's Myronel or Hawk or Taylor um, or Aqua Phoenix, they provide videos or some training materials that can help you understand what's in those procedures. And they're a great thing to review. 
I know on our kits, we, we put scan codes right on them with the video. So it makes it a little bit easier to find those and, and get using them. And then, you know, at Aqua Phoenix, we've been uh, dedicated. I am a firm believer about knowledge and learning and constantly learning new things. I'm, I'm refreshing a, on a whole bunch of stuff here. So we're actually going to be releasing our Aqua Phoenix Academy, which is a location for technicians. Um, or if you're setting up a program and you have some end users who are doing some testing, it's a place where for free they can come in and run through a series of courses to understand the ins and outs about safe, quality testing procedures and approaches, um, regardless of what they're doing in the water treatment area. Oh, that's a great resource. When does that start? We have already completed our first, what we call our technician certificate course. It's a set of 10, 30 to 45 minute online trainings, and we will be releasing fully at our AWT conference. And anyone will be able to go in, sign up and run through those 10 courses. They cover things like how to take a proper sample to how to run a burette titration to how to safely test and understand an SDS. And then we actually finish the course out with uh, some hands-on tests, some standards that they can run and test and, uh, and double check their work and, and get a little certificate to put on their wall at the end. That sounds pretty cool. I, I'm, you know, I'm passionate about learning and, and uh, I think this is a great way to, to give back a little bit of that community also that we've been involved in. Well, excellent. Well, would you mind if we actually explored uh, an actual test and talk about some of the interferences around that? What are some of the common mistakes that we make? And just sort of take it from there. Yeah, that would be great. I'm not always an expert on all of the chemistry, but we'll test the knowledge. Well, Harlan, how about we do a deep dive into one particular test that I'm sure every listener is familiar with, and that would be the CAN nitrite test. Absolutely. This is a, a go-to test for a lot of our technicians, whether it's in commercial buildings or even some of those closed loops in industrial places. So the CAN test refers to um, both the, the nitrite titrant and the ferroin indicator that we're going to use in the test, which is different from some of the other ones like the permanganate test, which had been a standard for a long time but isn't really used based on some shelf life for the permanganate. It also tends to be a bit messy in your kits. So Harlan, we're at the account, we've got the representative sample of the system, and now we're ready to run our test. What do we do? All right, so the first thing, we have our sample. If we're gonna run it straight, so we understand that the, the equivalency of the titrant, the 50 parts per million per drop is okay, um, and we don't need to dilute or change the size of our sample, then we're gonna go out and actually measure and run our test. So. I would pull out my procedure. I would double check, particularly um, for those of us who are new in this industry, double check my procedures. So where that always starts is looking at our safety tips and our testing tips. So making sure that we have the right personal protection. So our eye protection and gloves that we have that uh, if we need to, we can refer to any of the SDSs for that procedure. I always like to check what's in the kit. So most of us get pretty familiar with this, right? We have our two bottles and a vial that go with this test. So I double check that I have all of those on hand. And then it comes time to actually prepare for the test. So the first one to remove any of the interferences that could be there, not in the water, but because of our equipment, is I wanna rinse my vial. So we recommend rinsing a vial three times of a sample. That gets rid of anything that was residual or dried out in that test. So that'd be the first thing that I would do. Then on the procedure, we fill the vial up to the required sample size. And then for the nitrite test, for most people, unless they have an altered procedure um, based on their own programs, that's gonna be five mils. And this is one of the areas where we find some issues at times with how this procedure is run. Five mils is a small sample. In drop count titrations, there's already a bit of a plus or minus accuracy because of the nature of the test. And if I'm off on my volume, I can really significantly change the accuracy of my test. At five mils, if I tilt that tube towards me or away from me, I could actually be at four mils and six mils. And now I've already introduced another 20 plus percent error in the test that I'm going to be run, which can be significant in leading to whether I'm overusing chemicals or whether I'm under treating that system. So Always hold that vial down if you can on a flat surface or level and check where that meniscus or that bottom of that, that water line lines up to that five mil mark. Um, and that's just good testing procedures for anything. Then we add our ferroin indicator, our eight drops of ferroin indicator, um, making sure that it turns a nice brilliant orange. 
or a good orange color. It could look a little bit different based on the starting quality of your, the water that you're testing. And then we add one drop at a time, our titrant. Um, now, good procedure is make sure we hold that titrant bottle straight up and down. If we hold it to the side or if we squeeze a little bit too hard, the drops that we get out of it could be oversized or undersized, and we could be getting some inaccurate results or we're running the test inaccurately and we won't get a number that actually represents what is in our system. So we hold it vertically and we drop it in single distinct drops and we swirl as we go and we count those drops as we continue. And then with all titrations, when you reach that equivalency point or the point where the uh, indicator and the things that you added switch over to being equivalent, which means you've now measured how much is in that sample of, of this nitrate you're looking for, at that time, the color is gonna change because you've added your indicator. When it goes from an orange to a blue that's and stays there, that's when you know you've completed. And the number of drops that you've added will indicate how much that you have in there. So in this case, it's one drop is 50 parts per million as sodium nitrite, NaNO2. Um, and that becomes a straightforward calculation. I'm gonna do it. Now, Trace, I'll tell you one of the things that we often see two issues around this test beyond the measuring and things are, one, how do you express your results? And number two is understanding the strength of that titrant. So first thing is you could express how much nitrate is in a system in a couple different ways. So as straight nitrite, NO2, or as the sodium nitrite. And there's, on test procedures, they'll give you something to multiply your results by to go back and forth. But make sure you're using the right units when you're measuring or recording based on what's on your service record. The second one that I talked about has to do with the strength of the drops. So in this test, each drop is worth 50 parts per million. That means that there's no way to distinguish between those 50 parts per million. And sometimes we forget this a little bit. So if a system has, let's say it has 130 parts per million, I won't be able to measure that. I will measure at 100 and then I'll measure the next drop at 150. And there's no way to know where I am in that range. And that has to do with how well you can measure. So that tells you what the detectability is for that test. One of the other places that we've talked to some of our customers about is in some systems that have low amounts of nitrite. We, we've occasionally had some technicians that go in, they drop in a drop of titrant, it turns color. So great, that's 50 parts per million. I'm good to go. My system is safe. And it might not actually be that way. If we're really running it right at the low end of the drop titration, we might not be as accurate because we're only using a single drop of titrant. But two, we could be anywhere from zero to 50 parts per million in that sodium nitrite. And then it becomes important to alter a little bit on your procedures to make sure that you're getting the right count in that case. And that's another typical thing we've seen in some cases running the nitrite test. And for those folks out in the Scaling Up Nation, if you are only treating your closed loop systems with only 50 ppm of sodium nitrite, you have got some issues. You need a lot more than that to get some protection in there. Well, you mentioned earlier the fact that I was doing a drop count and it would change color and then it would go back to the original color and it would change again, it would go back. Here in our company, we call that the hanging chat effect. But what exactly is going on there? There could be a variety of different things. So, and it depends a little bit on the test. In a lot of the tests, whether you have an alkalinity test or a hardness test, the first thing is, is you may not have gotten enough of your buffer or indicators in there to prep your sample. So in, in a lot of the titrations that you're gonna run, you're either gonna change your pH or add enough of some other materials to prep for when you're adding your titrant in there. And if you don't have enough of those, if you haven't made that initial color change or the pH change correctly, when it comes to actually titrate at the end, it might not give you all of the results that you're looking for. And so double checking that you've done enough of the initial steps can really help. There are some cases where interferences can affect what it is that you're running out. So iron and copper, some of those metal ions can cause those issues with a variety of tests. The other very common one that I think a lot of uh, our listeners are gonna be familiar with is the sulfite test where we get to the end of the sulfite test or where we think the end is, and we're just not getting a final clear changeover in color. Um, and it's very gradual. And then we maybe get something at the end. And this is a very common question we get at Aqua Phoenix. And I know other manufacturers do. 
And uh, in this case, we're very much looking at an issue of where we have a sample that is too hot, that we've collected a sample, we haven't let it cool enough, and when we add in our starch indicator, we kind of cook that starch and it's not ready to do the work that it's supposed to. And because of that, we're not going to get a clear titration in the end and we'll actually end up getting false highs out of the test. And, and that's a case where we need to double check that we actually really cool our sample. Well, a lot of good information so far. So how do you get to that winning factor between price and accuracy and repeatability and ease of use and all the other things that come in to selecting a test kit? Right, so we've talked about that that test kit is your tool. It's, um, it's something that you can pull out and you can use at your account. And we've talked a little bit about how we select what's best for us. So we've generally broken out that there's a lot of criteria, right? There's no best test, but you need to look at a variety of, of criteria. So those include the price, the accuracy or repeatability, the ease of use. We'd also include portability, speed of the test, and also what are the detection limits on that test. So typically when you're gonna be selecting your test, you're gonna make some trade-offs in these. Um, it's just the nature of, of the chemistries and the manufacturing techniques and the things that you're gonna use. So for example, a lot of times test methods that are really easy to use, trade that off for either accuracy or cost. And a great example that some may be used to is pH. pH strips, we use them in school and, and sometimes we give them to certain types of end users. We may have them in our kit. They're super easy to use. I dip them, I hold them up, and I measure against a chart. It is very easy to use, it is very low cost, but you're gonna sacrifice some of the accuracy that you can get by using some other things. Where on the other end, I can pay for a high quality pH probe that gives me some repeatable, accurate results, um, but there's a little bit of cost that's invested into that and, and the time I need to maintain it. So the winning factor, I think, if you're gonna be deciding what's important to you, is looking again at um, what are the goals of your treatment, um, and then also getting some experience or asking good questions to some experienced people. They can help tell you that you know using a pH probe or this type of pH probe or meter is gonna work for you and will give you a good trade-off between cost and portability and ease of use. Well, great advice. Well, I know my test kit only has so much room in it. And if I decide that I'm going to take up valuable real estate with something, I want it to have more than one functions in most cases. And I will tell you, in working with your team, I've been able to determine some reagents can be replaced with other like reagents so I can get other things in the valuable space that I have. So how would somebody go about finding out how they could, could better streamline their test kit? And what tips can you give them on that? If it's not valuable space, it's also the weight that we carry around, right? And we don't want to necessarily use that space or carry that upstairs unnecessarily. So in testing, there are a couple different reagents or some of the approaches that you can streamline. So one of the easiest ones up front is looking at if you're using a meter to measure pH and conductivity, there are some multimeters available that definitely help save some space. Run the test all at one time and get some accurate results. There are some other chemistries that make streamlining it make sense. So the first one is phenolphthalein. Phenolphthalein is used in a variety of different tests and it can get reused in a couple different things. So because of that, what we did is we marked phenolphthalein always with a red cap or a pink cap so that you can always be able to find it in your kit and use it whether it's in one procedure or the next procedure. So then there are a couple other tests where you can get a little bit of the same indicators or buffers. So hardness buffer, or the starch acid powder is, is used in a variety of different kits. It is important to double check your titrant strengths or your different strengths that are needed just to make sure that you're not messing up that approach. What I can tell you is that if you do work with a manufacturer and you purchase the tests together in a kit, we try to help you to streamline that to get the best use of space. If you buy them separate, then you need to double check and you are able to maybe streamline your kit a little bit. But Trace, in, inherent in your question a little bit is also when I'm open that up in my kit, how am I gonna use it to get the best of my time? And that gets around setting up your kit also. So opening up your kit and laying it out in a way so that you can go and grab things in an easy way and not have to search and find them. So first is keep a nice clean kit. Make sure that you take out the things that you don't need. You keep it clean and free from mess and drips and spills and things like that. You can also group your tests together so that you know when you're running a hardness test, the, the bottles or the materials that are needed for it are right next to each other. 
We began doing this using our endpoint ID procedures, and that included these caps that would group tests together. So, you know, your hardness was always blue and your nitrite was always green, and it was easy to see from the top of your kit exactly what you were going to grab. Some of the other manufacturers have begun looking at the tests that way, and that definitely makes life a little bit easier. The other one, if you get some experience and get used to how you're running your kit, you can actually then lay out how you run through your procedures inside of your kit whether you want to move left from right or from the top to the bottom, or do it so you can pull out one part and pull out another while you're waiting. You had a a previous podcast where um, there was some great discussion about where you start your tests that require time. They require some digestion or they require a timer, working on some other tests in the meantime, and then coming back to those. So those are still very good tips to use. Well, let me ask, when you exceed the time limit on one of those digestions, does that mean you have to start over or is the test still good a certain amount of time? How do you know? Uh, It's a good question. And you need to really look at the, um, particularly for the time sensitive stuff, you need to look at the procedures. So there are some tests where you'll be okay. You've given it enough time. um, And there's others where you could actually blow past what it is that you're looking for in testing. And the procedures will definitely indicate when that is the case. I like to tell people whenever they're questioning something about one of their tests to, to do that and then run it the real way and see if they can repeat that result. Is that still good advice? I agree. And repeatability is and being able to do those tests over and over in the same way is a big key to making sure that you understand your tests, that you're running them correctly, and then also understanding that you're interpreting them correctly at your account. So I, I definitely agree with running them a couple different times to make sure that you, you really understand what's going on and that you're not changing things that messes up and, and you're interpreting it incorrectly. So you mentioned pH meters and conductivity meters, and along with that are also the spectrophotometers and things that are the most expensive within our test kit. What is the best way to make sure that those are staying nice and and clean and ready to do the work that we need them to do so we don't accidentally have to buy another one? Yeah, they, these equipment, are they require an investment, but it's usually a, a fantastic investment that can pay off to help keep our accounts, but we have to take care of that investment. They aren't cheap, but if you take good care of them, those tools will take good care of you. So the first part is, and I think where we see a lot of the issue is around storage. So we go, we use our equipment, we throw it back under our kit and it can get damaged in transport or it's being stored in a way that over the long time takes the life out of it. So what what I would start with is making sure that you're storing it correctly. You're storing it in a safe place that protects it, that keeps it from getting banged around and keeps it clean and dry. Make sure you have a dedicated space in your test kit. You can wrap it back up in a case that it belongs into or in some of the multi-parameter kits that manufacturers provide. There's a, a cutout area where you can slide that equipment back in and keep it nice and safe. So that's the first part. Then after I've used it and I'm getting ready to put it away, there's a little bit of time that you should take to care for it and prepare it for the next use. So we like to keep it cleaned out. For most equipment, it's pretty straightforward rinsing out the parts that get wet, using a soft rag or cleaning surface to wipe it free of any debris, and then you're able to put it back in. For pH probes or some other ion-specific probes, you also need to store them correctly so they don't dry out. They have reference electrodes that can begin to go bad the day you start using them, and if you want to prolong that life as best you can, you need to store it correctly. And the best way to do that is to use the right storage solution. So a pH Electrode storage solution is the best solution that you can keep that surface wet while you're not using it. There are some other things you can use in a pinch, some of the buffers. We generally don't recommend that you use like a pH4 buffer to store your electrode in over time, and you can see how that that looks over time. Then you put it away, and now what are you going to do with your kit? Keeping it in the back of your trunk in a hot Georgia summer will definitely take some of the life out of your equipment. So make sure you store it cool. Make sure you store it in a safe place where it can stay dry and out of some of the humidity will add some life. And then just some regular maintenance. Check the battery strength, double check that it's still working and understand that all of them do have a life and it will become time when you're gonna have to replace that probe, replace that electrode, or maybe have to make an upgrade. Well, a lot of us are using the 60 mil little squeeze bottles for our liquid reagents, and then we're refilling those. How often can we refill them? And then what issues do we need to look out for? 
So that's a it's a great way to save and and to be able to you know pour down into your reagents and save some some money as you repeat. But you could only get one use and one refill out, or you could get several of them. The big issue has to do with the dropper tip at the top. So in one refill, you could damage that, and then you're going to ruin the accuracy of what you're doing in your test methods. So the big issue is that the orifice and the top that's in your dropper stays the size that it needs to be so that your drops are a consistent size when you run your titrations. If you distort that or bend that or squeeze that, it can definitely affect your tests. So you can, a lot of the manufacturers will provide dropper tips that you can replace just as a single dropper tip. That will definitely allow you to extend that life. And then you're going to be able to get a good amount of refills in that that uh, bottle that you have. However, there are a couple of things that I would also always make sure you you take a look at. One, look at the general quality of the bottle. If you're getting some staining, if you're getting some markings, probably gonna be time to replace that entirely. Two, you wanna make sure that your usage still fits within the general manufacturing or the best buy date from that manufacturer. If it's only good for a year and you are refilling it, it can be difficult to keep track on whether that reagent's been used up in a year that is needed to keep it accurate. The other thing I look at is also the label. Make sure your label is clear and clean and visible and that it has all of the right SDS information that you need. If it isn't there and if it's damaged, we highly recommend that you replace it or you get some new labels to go on there because you can be liable at a customer site if they're labeled incorrectly for safety reasons. Excellent advice. Funny story for you. I was at one of our customers and they were, of course, using the can nitrite test that we were just speaking of. And you know how the titrant will crystallize a little bit on that tip. Well, he had a special nail that he was using to get that stuff all out of there. I'm guessing you don't agree with that. No, and I'm sure his results over time showed him he had excellent amounts of nitrite in his system. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I think the hole was so big, he used an entire bottle every time he titrated. So I think that's good for you guys' sales, but but not recommended with the industry. All right. So in your opinion, what's the most important tool in our test kit? So I'm going to cheat a bit. I don't think it's in your test kit. I think your brain is your most important tool. And and that may be a little bit of a cop-out answer, but trust it. Trust what your brain is telling you. When you run your test, does something seem odd? Does it Does it feel a little bit off in your results? Your test kits are really just tools and they're only as good as you understand how you're using them and the results that you're getting. And so that's why I think it's really the most important tool that's there. So I'm sure you get calls over and over and over again on your 800 number about a particular issue that if everybody knew what to do and how to use it properly, you wouldn't get those calls. So now is your time to speak with the Scaling Up Nation and letting them know the one thing that you want everybody to know about a particular item. Well, usually most customers ask us if we can get it to them for free. But when it comes to the actual technical tests, Honestly, our most common questions we get from customers or people who are using the test is, why isn't my test working correctly? And it could be for a variety of reasons, but a lot of times it comes down to understanding that that procedure and how it's used. So whether that's cooling your sulfite sample or taking the right sample size, or very often it's they're expecting the results to be read out as nitrite and it's sodium nitrite. So I think the best advice regardless of our experiences, go back to that procedure and understand it. Um, If you switch manufacturers, if you have a new method, refer back to that procedure and that will help take care of a lot of the potential issues you could have. So just between you and us, no, no one else is listening. Is it normally an issue with the actual test or is it normally the issue with the user? We we do see a good amount um, that has to do with people who haven't quite understood either the new test that they have or how it's applied in that situation. There are cases where there are definitely some chemistry issues with the test or equipment issues, right? And we we look to make sure that those are replaced. But a lot of times we tend to find issues around either how a sample was collected or how the procedure was actually run or understood. And very politically correctly answered, I might add. And, and, and to help you out a little bit, I would say that 99% of the time when one of our customers or somebody we're consulting with has an issue about a test, it's the way that they're running it. Normally, the chemistry is pretty faithful with how that works. So I'll try to bail you out on that one a little bit. But you bring up a good point, Chase. I think 
Obviously, we're talking about, you know, our listeners and they're out there and they're learning and they're running the tests. One of the things we don't appreciate in the job is we have to teach other people how to test. We go and we work at a customers and we service and we ask them to do some testing and they might have many years in the experience, but they might not be running it correctly. So one of the things that I think we forget sometimes and why it's important to understand procedures and be comfortable is we also need to make sure that we teach those right techniques to our customers so that we can and they can trust the results that they get when we're not in the building. Well, you mentioned some of the new things that you're doing to help with that was the academy that you're offering. What are some of the new things coming up in Aquaphoenix? Well, it has definitely been a busy summer for us at Aquaphoenix. So just before the summer, we recently acquired H2Tronics, another great member of uh, the AWT organization and, and been around for a while. We feel it's an excellent addition to our family as they focus on some of the custom panels, equipment, and their e-service report. So that's been a lot of fun. You talked about the academy. Um, we've also have launched this summer and, and we'll highlight at the AWT convention, our new Aliquot app, which is... Um, designed for smartphones or tablets um, that takes this testing part and makes it a little bit easier to get it into reports um, and to track that trending and to use it um, in communicating with our customers. And then finally, one of the big things we've been doing is upgrading our e-commerce platform, which makes it easy for our customers and their customers to select and choose and order um, the things that they need when they need it right away. Well, it sounds like you guys are very busy over there. Well, what haven't we talked about that we need to. So the last one I think that is really important to talk about is proper sampling. We hinted at it at a couple different locations, but but if it's okay, I want to take a moment and talk a little bit about proper samples. Absolutely. So, you know, we talk about running tests and understanding them, and that's all really important. But if we have a bad sample, it doesn't really matter how we're going to test it. Getting a proper sample is important. It's, it's sort of like if you think you have a fever and you take the temperature of your toe, you might not get the best information about whether you need to treat yourself or not. Um, and it's the same thing in a sample. We often forget that, you know, the proper sampling is to give us this representative sample, you know, something that stands in its part for the whole of the system. You know, if I'm pulling a 10 mil sample and running a titration on it, in a 10,000 gallon system, you know, you're talking about 25 millionths of the system. Um, and that's why making sure we get that, that right, we do our best to get it representative at the beginning helps. So there's making sure you try to get it from the bulk water, avoiding, you know, standing corners or dead legs, allowing a sample line to flow for a while. So you get some of the, the stuff that stood there for a while to get out and some of the sediment, get a proper good representative sample. Those are some of the techniques that really help and make sure that you're getting the right thing to test and, and to start with. Great advice. Well, I, I think this was a good start on you know what we should be looking for with test kits. I'm sure there are a lot more questions. I know there are that we can ask you. So I'm gonna ask you to come back so we can have that conversation someday if you're agreed to that. Absolutely, I look forward to it and uh, I'll make sure we uh, dive into the deeper chemistry. Excellent. Well, before I let you off the hook, we still have the lightning round question. So are you ready for those? Oh, I'm ready. All right. So if you could go back in time and talk to yourself the first day you started as a water treater, what advice would you give yourself? I would tell myself, don't sweat it. That as you work, you'll carve out the path that's going to work for you. And then the second thing I learned in retrospect was that the time I spent interacting with customers is invaluable regardless of what you go on to do later in your career. Great advice. So what are the last three books that you've read? Love to read. Um, some interesting things. I read Julia Child's autobiography. It's part of a, a writing project I've been working on to, to write another book. I also, my guilty pleasure over the summer at the pool was uh, reading a little bit more of my uh, Harry Potter volumes in German, which is a good brush up and, uh, and a easy read. Um, and then last one, I've, I've been reading Man Votionals, which is written by the McKays who run the Art of Manliness website, a site I love and uh, I've done some writing for in the past. Well, cool. And actually, I have you to blame for the new device that's entered my household this year, which was actually the sous vide. I learned about that from you. And that is actually now my favorite appliance in our kitchen. And uh, I think you and I have traded recipes and stuff back and forth. But our listeners say, are saying, what the heck is a sous vide? So why don't you give a plug for them? 
Well, it takes heat transfer to the culinary world, right? And uh, no, it is the water treater's preferred choice of cooking. I love it. Absolutely. So the sous vide um, um, allows you to precisely control a water bath to cook. I love using it at home. I've done uh, meats and eggs and all sorts of things. So it it uh, it circulates water in a little water bath and it maintains a very precise temperature. And if you properly prepare food that goes into it, usually within some uh, cooking containers, like some bags, um, you can do things with your cooking that you would have never expected to do. So I think the best example is doing a six pound roast and having it come out perfectly rare or medium rare from end to end. That is impressive. And uh, the thing I love about it, and uh, by the way, I'm not getting any money from the sous vide people. So my, my wife will say, oh, I'll be home at six o'clock. Well, no, she's not. She's home at eight, but it's still medium rare. It's exactly what you set the temperature for. And then you just, you just finish it when you're ready to eat it. So I want to thank you for bringing that into my life. And I wonder if we can get some other water treaters out there cooking with, uh, with water heat transfer as well. Absolutely. All right. So when, because you know they're going to do it. So when they make a movie about your life, who plays you? So in the past, for the good or bad, people have said I looked a bit like Joe Scarborough, right? Who's on MSNBC. But I would pick Jimmy Stewart or John Cleese, who I played um, in a Faulty Towers episode when I was in high school. So uh, I have some, some good feelings about that. All right, then. So last question. If you were able to talk with anybody throughout history, who would it be with and why? So my first uh, answer is I, I um, one of your other guests saw was uh, Theodore Roosevelt. I, I definitely enjoy reading about his experience. Um, but as I thought about this, I would actually really like to go back and sit and talk with my great, great, great grandfather, Stillman Pond, who uh, he was a pioneer. He crossed the plains. He lost all of his family while doing it, um, and yet still rebuilt. And uh, for me, family's really important, and so I think there'd be a lot to learn there. All right, well, you've been a great guest, and like I said, there's so many questions that I get on the Scaling Up website that deal with testing. I'm sure there's gonna be an opportunity for you to come back. Wanna thank you for your time today, and thanks for coming on Scaling Up. Thank you, Trace, for giving me the time. Well, Nation, I sure hope that you, after that interview, at the very least, are thinking about your test kit differently. Folks, this is a tool of yours. And as a water treatment professional, it's probably your best tool out there. Now, I love using the word tool because it is not your master. And there are so many people out there that will go to an account that they're responsible for and they'll spend all their time in their test kit and then they leave and they think that the account is done. Folks, that is not using that tool properly. Your number one item that you should be using, as Harlan mentioned, is your brain. Before you even go into the account, you should have an idea of exactly what's going on, and now you're gonna use all of your tools to assist you on figuring out if you were right about your original hypothesis or not. And if you were right, that's great, you can go ahead and finish out the service as you thought you would, but if you were incorrect and your tests start steering you in a different direction and you verify that it is the correct direction, now you can do what you need to do to properly finish the service in that account. Now, Harlan mentioned a couple of things that's very important for us to do if we are going to respect this tool. One, keep your test kit clean. If your test kit is grungy, there is absolutely no way that you can be confident of its accuracy. And moreover, think about when one of your customers sees how you keep one of your most valuable tools. Do you want them to think, wow, if he keeps his equipment looking like that, how is he keeping my equipment looking? So whether it's clean or dirty, I'm sure you want him to go in one direction when they ask that question. Also, keep a copy of the current procedures with you. Now, Hawk especially, they will occasionally update procedures as they learn new things from the field about different interferences or maybe reaction time needs to be shorter or longer. So if you haven't looked 
at your information on how to run your tests in a while, it's not a bad idea to do that. And something that we do here is we will actually test our tests. I'll make up a standard in the lab, and then we will run all of us together using our test kits, and hopefully we're getting the same answer. If we don't, that means one, we're either running the test wrong, and if that's not the case, we then look at the reagents that we're using and seeing if something's wrong with either how we're delivering the reagent or the reagent itself. If you're not doing that, how do you know? And speaking of the most current testing procedures, I went ahead and pulled up on the Hawk Water Analysis Handbook, which is uh, on the internet. So you can search the Hawk Water Analysis Handbook and all the latest, greatest procedures will come up. Even if you're not using Hawk, the method probably is still in there. And this manual does such a great job of not only explaining how to use the test, but it explains every single interference that they know about and how to get them out of the test. It also has a summary method. So we were talking earlier about the nitrite test. So that's the seric acid nitrate. That's what CAN stands for. So if I were to read the summary of method, this is exactly what it says. Ferrin indicator and acid is added to the sample. The sample was titrated with a trivalent cerium ion, which is a strong oxidant. After the cerium oxidizes the nitrite, the indicator is oxidized and causes a color change from orange to pale blue. The quantity of the titrant used changes in relation to the concentration of the sodium nitrite in the sample. Now, maybe that's more than you want to know, but folks, when you can understand your test to that fine a point, when you actually understand the chemistry behind them, it will help you so much in determining whether your tests are telling you the truth or not. Now, if I were to turn to the interferences page on the CAN nitrite tests, there's nothing there. So now I don't think they intentionally left anything out, but I don't think that this test has a lot of known interferers. It's also the test that's preferred if you have a glycol system because glycol can actually interfere with some of the tests. Now, if I were to go over to one of the other alternatives for testing nitrite, I can see that bismuth is an interferer. Well, we got uh, copper, iron, lead, curie. Nitrate is an interferer. Uh, silver, and there's about five more things on the list. So you can see these are things that could already be in the water. And if we're testing for something that interferes with one of the things that's already in there, we're already starting out behind the eight ball. So take a look at your procedures and you're gonna find that one, there might be a better test out there, but at the very least, you're gonna know how that works and you're gonna get more up-to-date on the procedures. When it comes to organizing your kit, take some time and organize your kit the way you use it. Folks, if you're having to search around your test kit to find something in the field, that is time you do not need to spend. So invest some time over the next weekend and think about when I'm in the field, what tests do I run first? How do I run them? And then how can I organize my test kit so my test kit is nice and ready to go where I don't have to search for things? And a great thing to do, and Harlan mentioned this, is they mark their caps. So they have different color codes for different tests. I love that. In my test kit, I want to make sure that I can see everything I'm looking for without having to pull it out. So I use a lot of labels. Folks, buy a label maker and start putting things around your test kit. Make it so you don't have to pull something out to see it and make sure everything has its place. Once you've done all of that, practice, practice, practice. You should not have to ever look at a procedure when you're running a test to figure out if you're doing that right or not. Now, occasionally we do have to go back and look at procedures to make sure they haven't updated anything, but if we don't know our tests well enough to run them, we're worried more about how we're running them than what the tests are telling us. So get that out of the way, make sure you're very proficient at running the test and then your entire attention can go to what the tests are telling you. 
Folks, the bottom line is to look at your test kit as a tool and the fine people at Aquaphoenix is one of the great partners that we have to help us make sure we're utilizing that tool perfectly. So let's look at a couple of questions that you all have written into me that work around this whole idea of using our test kit as a tool. First question is, Trace, depending on if I'm using nitrite or sodium nitrite, there is a multiplying factor. How do you get that multiplying factor? Well, how most of us get is that we simply look at the procedure and it tells us a number and we just simply multiply that. Most of us are happy with whatever that number is. And by the way, if you're converting nitrite to sodium nitrite, that would be a multiplication factor of a 1.5. But I know that there are other people out there like me and they wanna know where that comes from. Well, folks, it's actually very simple and it actually goes to using the periodic table. And I know you thought when you were done with chemistry class, you were never going to have to use the periodic table again. Well, folks, here it is. It has come back and we are going to use it. So what we're gonna do is we're going to get out the periodic table and we're simply gonna add up how much the molecules that we're looking at weigh. So if I were to look at nitrite, I would look and I would see that it has one nitrogen and two oxygens. Now the molecular weight of nitrogen is 14. The molecular weight of oxygen is 16. We've got two of those. We add all three of that together. So 14, 16, and 16, we get 46. The molecular weight of nitrite is 46. Now we're gonna look at sodium nitrite. So it's the same molecule with a sodium attached to it. Sodium weighs roughly 23. So we're just gonna add 23 to that. So now we know that the molecule sodium nitrite is 69, and we know that the molecule nitrite is 46. So what we do is whatever we started with, we're gonna put that number on first, and whatever we wanna convert it to, we want to put that number on the bottom. So we started with the sodium nitrite and we wanna convert that to nitrite. So we put 69 over 46, we divide and we get 1.5. And if you were to turn to the directions page, to the procedures, it would say multiply by 1.5. Now you can do that with anything. Think about what you're starting with what you want to convert it to, find out what the molecular weights are, divide, and that is how you do that. So hopefully the listener that wanted to know that information, you can use that information. And there's a whole host of things that you can do with that. And if you've ever seen me present at the Association of Water Technologies, I let you know what you can do when you start being able to use the periodic table. But that's for another show. So my next question is from a listener that wants to know about why is temperature so important when it comes to sulfite testing? Now, Harlan talked about this, but the thing that I think is really interesting and, and how you can think about this is that there is starch in the sulfite test. So think about where the starch comes from. It comes from potatoes. So essentially, if the temperature is too high, you're cooking the potatoes or you're cooking the starch, and now the starch is not available to react in that reaction. So that's why you have to have your sample at room temperature when you're running a sulfite test. Otherwise, you're going to get a false answer. You'll think you'll have 20 times the amount of sulfite you actually do in that boiler because the starch got cooked. And now my last question is from a person that really has an issue with bad light in mechanical rooms. And we've talked about this on the show. And I know a lot of you have gone out there and purchased this small little light kit that we found. And I told you before, the reason that I like this light kit is that it allows us to bring good quality light into the mechanical room without taking up a whole bunch of space in our test kit. 
So I made a video demonstrating what this light actually is. It was one of my first videos, so be kind to me when you watch that. But it's scalinguph2o.com forward slash light video. And if you want to purchase the light, you can go to an affiliate link that I've set up, which is scalinguph2o.com forward slash light. The last thing I'm going to leave you with, besides making sure you use your test kit as a tool, is think about ways that you can test your tool to make sure it's working correctly. And I love this next tip that I'm going to share with you. And this comes from Bernadette Combs, who used to be president of the Association of Water Technologies, and she runs her own water treatment company out in New Mexico. Now, what she does to test the dropper tips on our reagents is she will actually put the little dropper tip on a bottle of DI water, and she will put 25 drops on a little whey paper or a little whey plastic dish, and it will equal one gram. I thought that was pretty cool. Personally, I just change out the dropper tip. They're not that expensive, but the whole point is she is confident in her tests and her people are confident in the tests that they run because they've developed things like this to check the accuracy. So what have you done to check the accuracy of your tests so you can remain confident in everything that you do? Folks, I hope you got a lot out of this show. I hope at the very least you're going to go out and you're going to try something different. You're going to be better tomorrow than you were today because you are trying something different. And I look forward to talking with you next time on Scaling Up. <laughs>